From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Three months from an election and Tabor refund checks are hitting the mail, along with a letter from the governor, who's on the ballot. I think that's the real example of cynicism to say that somehow because there's an election, the government should hold on to your money for another year. The truth is, as you know, we wanted to move up the refund by about a year to people because they need it now. Plus, monkeypox, gun laws, and wolf reintroduction in our regular conversation with Governor Jared Polis. Then, the author of a dystopian young adult novel that is lined with hope. I feel that there will never be one single solution to all of our problems. But the most important thing is that we are learning how to connect with each other again. And I believe in the human spirit to overcome a lot of these problems. Music has this special ability to elevate the stories we tell, make you feel seen, help you to understand someone else's experience. Started from the bottom, now we're here. That's part of the joy of Started listening to music bottom, and exactly what we're exploring in the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Yes. Five-minute musical explorations to help inspire great conversations about music in classrooms and during family time. Season two of the award-winning podcast, Music Blocks, is all about the stories of our lives. Find it wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The check is in the mail, Governor Jared Polis told Coloradans in a press conference this week. But he says it's not an attempt to influence your vote. Polis is up for re-election. According to him, the $750 for individuals, $1,500 for joint filers, is meant to ease the crush of inflation. That's where we started our regular conversation with Colorado's governor at the state capitol. Also on the agenda, monkeypox, homelessness, and back to school. Governor, thanks for having us in your office. It's a pleasure to see you. Welcome, Ryan. These checks are going out three months from the midterms, and I wonder if you have any trouble whatsoever with the optics of that. Well, I I think that's the real example of cynicism to say that somehow because there's an election, the government should hold on to your money for another year. The truth is, as you know, we wanted to move up the refund by about a year to people because they need it now. Um, To say that somehow the government should sit on your money is just ridiculous. The sooner we can get it out, the better. People are going to get them in the next week or two. Some people ask, why didn't they come out earlier? To be clear, this year didn't end until June 30th. So none of this could even start moving until July. And we got them out pretty quickly here the first week in August. So people are going to get them uh, $750 per person, $1,500 per joint filer. In addition to that, uh, an income tax cut for every Coloradan from 4.55 to 4.5% for all income earned this year. And then there'll be additional money refunded next April as well when people file their taxes. To continue to be the cynic, will your name appear anywhere? Check, envelope, enclosed letter. Uh, that's a good question. I think it a mock-up check that we had here earlier, um, and it was signed by uh, the controller, the treasurer, those two people signed checks. There'll be a note from me explaining what this is, websites and phone numbers for people to call. The most important thing is not so much the people that get it, they'll be happy, they'll cash it. It's if you don't get one, because everybody who filed taxes for 2021 should get one. But I get, you know, probably 98%. There'll probably be 2% that moved or the mail got lost. You don't lose out on your $750. That's the main message. Message I want to send. So if you don't get it by the end of August, if we're in September and you're like, I didn't get my check, go to coloradocomebackcash.com 
and you can make sure that you get it. Now, if you haven't filed taxes for 2021, and of course, if you earned income, you, you better have filed taxes for 2021 because it's a legal requirement. But if you didn't have any taxable income, you might not have filed for 2021. You actually still can. And you also don't miss out on this refund. So you can file by October 17th, and you'll get it uh, hopefully by Christmas. Uh, the you know, Department of Revenue is saying by January. But our goal is to get those out by Christmas for anybody who hasn't filed yet. The note that will come with the check, is that a little icky in a midterm election year? Well, it just explains the basics of why people are getting the check. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know this is coming. And, and so they have to make sure this is not like some loan. It's, in fact, a refund check. It's just the basics of what that is. And obviously, that's important. People have to know it's not a scam. It's legit. You know, you get those fake checks in the mail, like you won the sweepstakes, million-dollar check. This is not that. I mean, people need to go cash this check. This is serious. This is important. This is needed. I would add that many of the tax cuts and fee reductions we did in the legislature since you're focused on the election, Ryan, actually don't take effect till 23, 24. Like our biggest one was the property tax cut. That is for 23 and 24. It was a two-year property tax cut. Critics on both sides take issue with you labeling this the Colorado cashback program. Conservatives say that it erases Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, from the messaging. Uh, and that is why this refund is possible is this constitutional amendment. On the left, there's concern that by not making it clear where this money comes from, you're kind of making it less clear that in a world without Tabor, this is money that might pay for education or roads. Is the Colorado cashback label obfuscating this, separating it from Tabor? Well, look, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. That's, uh, you know, far more eloquent than me, William Shakespeare. Uh, so whatever you want to call it, it's $750 in your pocket, $1,500 for joint filers. Of course, it's on every website, the source of these funds. It's one of four Tabor refund mechanisms. Should we now count you as a fan of Tabor? Well, I've always been in the mend it, don't end it camp, right? You can certainly look back at all the rhetoric I've used. There's parts of Tabor I'm fully supportive of. That includes the right to vote on any tax increase. Without a question, people should be able to vote on tax increases. There's parts that I think we can do better. Uh, like, for instance, the formula for the spending cap and how that relates to inflation. And I'll give you a perfect example because we're in an inflationary period right now, right? Across the entire economy, 8 9%, whatever it is. This year, it's based on the prior year inflation. So the state budget went up 3.1% when there's 8 or 9% inflation. Now, okay, it'll catch up, but then next year, when who knows what inflation will be, let's say it goes back down to 2 or 3%, then the state budget will go up 8 or 9%. I would love to eliminate that lag and also to figure out how we can have an index that makes sense as part of that formula. Your drumbeat, indeed, is to save people money. And yet, this summer, new fees on delivery and ride-sharing went into effect. How does that square with your saving money message? Well, you know, when you're governor, you don't get to write the bills, you just sign or veto them. So our priority in that bill was a reduction in vehicle registration fees, and we got that. So everybody, uh, if you're a family, uh, you know, with, let's say, two cars, you will pay less in fees and taxes, unless you have more than 84 deliveries. And I get it that some people do, but many people have less than 84, you know, food deliveries or whatever it is. And again, to a certain extent, I think people understand why it makes sense. What used to be a quiet cul-de-sac and, you know, when I walk neighborhoods, you see it. Now there might be like three delivery vans going in and out. I mean, those roads are being used more and, you know, whether it's Amazon, whether it's uh, whoever it is. So somebody's got to pay for that extra wear and tear on the roads. And, and it ought to be those folks that are running those trucks into residential neighborhoods. 
There are fears of a recession, and I wonder if that is something you are braced for. Well, I'm braced for whatever lies ahead. You know, my background is in business. We've been doing great on job creation. We have one of the strongest economic recoveries in the nation. So our economy is strong. Obviously, uh, no one has a crystal ball. And you can talk to five economists and get 10 opinions about what the future will bring. But certainly, the state has record levels of reserves in our budget. And we're well positioned to weather whatever lies ahead. Are the people that you consult when it comes to the economy, are they telling you to brace for a recession? The only certainty at this point is uncertainty because of all the the risk in the global environment, right? Our supply chain is going to get better or worse. Will the war in Ukraine be resolved or will it escalate, right? There are so many factors that what you see among economists is a much greater range of uncertainty, everything from solid and continued growth to recession. Uh, Another great concern is inflation. Um, What is being done to combat inflation? Of course, I think the federal government should do more. I've thrown a few things into that mix, like reducing tariffs. What can a state do? Not a lot, other than try to get more money back to people to keep up with rising costs, which is what the Colorado comeback cash that people will be getting in the next week or two is all about. Transit systems across the state are offering free fares this month on buses and light rail and trains. State grants are making this possible with the idea of improving air quality by getting people out of their cars. According to our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, a previous attempt at this in the 1970s by RTD in Denver didn't really move the needle in terms of long-term commuter shifts. How will you gauge the success of this month? So first of all, this is one of the hundred things we're doing to save people money. So literally, this is saving people money on bus fares across many areas, not just RTD, many other transit districts across the state, uh, making that free. We've also slashed the prices of Bustang and Pegasus. Denver to Vail is, I think, 10 bucks now, very low price for transit, very high quality. In terms of what it does for ridership, we are going to be very interested in looking at the data on that. I don't think we can discern much from the 1970s. We're a very different state. My folks moved here in 1970. I was born a few years later. But we are a very different state, very different commuting habits, very different demographics. So I think that really this will be learning for the whole nation to see exactly who takes advantage of this, who stays with ridership, and how it impacts our air quality in the long run, how it helps our transit systems in the long run. Uh, In the short term, the biggest impact is simply saving people money that might need to go to groceries or rent or other rising costs. So the point is, this is an experiment. You will look at the results, and I suppose you'll make decisions from there about whether you might give similar grants to RTD and other agencies in the future. Uh, That's right. right. This is a, a timed program, but it's one that, depending on how it works, the state would be interested in piloting or expanding in future years. It's one of our many pollution reduction components. We, we passed a significant air quality package this last legislative session. One of the highlights is converting school buses to electric school buses, which we're very excited about, also important for kids' health, and saving school districts money on diesel fuel so they can put that money back in the classroom and teacher pay and smaller class size. Uh, but we are always very data-driven, and we'll, we'll very much be looking forward to what the impact of the free transit fares across August will look like. According to your state health department, there were 62 reported cases of monkeypox in July. That was up from just six the month prior. Governors in California and Illinois have declared states of emergency over this virus. Can we expect you to do the same, Governor Polis? Well, we're always looking at the data in real time. We've administered at our Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment over 1,800 doses of the vaccine. 
as you know, the vaccine is in limited supply, different than when COVID hit, there was no vaccine. That first you know, year was really awful. There, we, all we could do is try to stay safe. There already is a vaccine, very effective for monkeypox. We've had 16 clinics. We've now enrolled 35 vaccine providers across the state to administer the doses. Uh, we're looking to get them out to communities that are at risk. You know, you asked very specifically about emergency. What we always look at, does that, is there a reason for that? Does that open up more federal funding? Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't just do these kinds of things for the heck of it. So we're always looking at, is there some opportunity or reason to use that to more effectively either get vaccines out or reduce the spread? Of you don't see products. an imminent need for that at this point. It hasn't been, uh, no, nothing that we've seen yet uh, shows a benefit to the state in terms of funding or anything else from taking that measure now, but we certainly don't rule anything out. And we're certainly all hands on deck and elevated at CDPHE to the governor's office. What we can do, of course, on the education side, getting word out about what it means, as well as the uh, vaccination side. I mean, you cite that there have been 1,800 doses distributed. There's not enough monkeypox vaccine to meet demand. At last check, the sign-up form at CDPHE was closed, citing extremely limited supply from the federal government. Uh, Governor, I think about your actions early in the COVID pandemic. Um, You didn't wait for the feds to act in some regards. You sought, for example, PPE on the international market. Should Colorado act as its own agent when it comes to monkeypox, given how limited the federal supply is? So first, to be clear, we don't face a shortage of protective equipment. We have hospital capacity. Uh, There are treatments for monkeypox. So I want to be clear at this point, this is not a medical capacity issue. We are always looking at anything we can do better on prevention. And that means outreach to groups that are impacted, keeping the public informed, and of course, moving aggressively as we can, both with the federal government and if opportunity arises, other providers to make more vaccines available to Coloradans. I'll just say there are people who've gotten a first shot for monkeypox. It's a two-dose vaccine. They've been told by the state health department there's not enough vaccine for the second yet. Is that where Colorado should be? So to be clear, so we will have our sign-up sheet open again by this Friday. And that includes both Coloradans who want to complete the vaccine series and get the second vaccine, as well as people who want to begin that. Now, that doesn't mean that every single person can get that on Saturday, but at least they'll be able to sign up. And we're expecting significant additional supply of the vaccine in the coming days and weeks. Here we are bandying between viruses. So let's go back to COVID. The other uh, one. The, the other one. The vaccination rate for COVID for children under five lags behind other age groups. This is true in Colorado and across the country. Right now, it has plateaued in this state at around 8%. Are you trying to move that needle? Pardon the pun. Yeah, certainly when it comes to uh, vaccination, the, the top priority is getting third and fourth doses to people in their 70s and 80s, right? That's the highest risk of hospitalization, highest risk of death. Beyond that, in general, strongly support vaccination. My kids are eight and 10. They got their third dose. Many parents might not be aware if your kids are, you know, six or 15, the FDA and CDC have recommended a third dose. Uh, The truth is when you're vaccinated, there's a lower risk. And we also know that, of course, risk correlates with age. I'm 47. I haven't gotten that fourth dose yet. I've had three. I'm hopeful. And I'm also being, as you know, critical of the FDA during all of this. I hope they approve the Omicron-specific vaccine quickly, uh, soon. And when they do, I'll be very eager to get that myself. And to those specifically under five, 
Do you have particular concerns about that low rate? I encourage, uh, you know, parents to look at that along with other childhood vaccinations. I mean, there's a whole host of vaccinations that parents should get for their kids, and I hope they get them on schedule, and I hope that their pediatrician is administering COVID-19 along with other critical childhood vaccines. I think what a lot of parents are doing is they might have an annual physical, and, and, and hopefully that would be an opportunity, you know, around when they're getting other vaccines to also get the COVID vaccine. Why not require COVID-19 vaccine on the list of required shots for public school? Well, it, well, first of all, in Colorado, to be clear, while we strongly encourage parents to make the right decision to get the kids vaccinated, vaccines are not required. Any parent can opt out of that. Um, well, they're required until they're opted out of. Right. They, they opted. They, they can Why not do that for COVID-19? Well, it's a vaccine that still has the experimental authorization, and I think a lot of uh, four zero to five, by the way. Uh, and I think that many parents want to make sure that it is more than just an experimental authorization before they would want that. But but there's nothing to stop school districts and, and schools from looking at those those measures. I'm not aware of any that have in our state. But again, we value in our state individual liberty, privacy. It's really uh, up to parents on any vaccine. Speaking of school, it's back to school time. And I wonder if there are some specific ways that your administration is trying to attract and retain teachers. I know there was $52 million in federal relief money spent to address the shortage. Any signs that's working? Any new fronts on this? First of all, we're thrilled that parents back to school will get the $750 back in time, $1,500 for a couple in time for back to school expenses. <laughs> you, you seem to drop that in at every well, occasion. Well, it's somehow. very useful for back to school expenses. So we, in our recent state budget it's this year, increased funding for school districts by about 9%. What does that mean? For a class of 25 kids, we increased the budget by about uh, $12,000. Um, now, it's up to school districts how to spend that. But obviously, one of the things they're looking at is increased teacher pay. That's why you see school districts with, you know, 8% increase, 10% increase. Now, they also look at reducing class size. They look at adding uh, specialties and, and getting some of the arts back in the schools. There's many other things they need to consider. We have local administration of schools. I completely support that. But uh, the state has stepped up as a funding partner to enable our districts to pay more competitive salaries to attract and retain teachers. Are you seeing that happen? Are the results visible yet, or is yeah, it too early? It, it depends on different parts. Parts of the state. I mean, we absolutely hear about areas where they filled most or all of their positions. Uh, I also hear about districts where they're beginning the year with some positions vacant and having to do what they can, either having uh, central staff uh, in the classroom and uh, substitutes. But but I would say most, you know, across most districts, most positions are filled. Um, it's not at crisis levels. Obviously, if it's your kid who doesn't, you know, who starts with a substitute, I get it. That's a crisis for you. I hope the district fills that as quickly as possible. But that is rare in our state. So you think pay is the fundamental mechanism to attraction and retention? There's more to it than pay. I, I also think it's about respect for our educators. Uh, there is a marked decrease in civility across many institutions in our country, unfortunately, over time. Obviously, politics and politicians are one of those, and we can take it. That's the realm we're in. But when it, people take out their frustrations on classroom teachers, it absolutely has a detrimental effect in our ability to attract and retain excellent professional classroom teachers uh, to help our kids achieve academically. So I would call on everybody, whatever frustrations you have, by all means, talk to your elected school board, you know, yell at your legislators, yell at me. Don't yell at your teachers for unrelated issues. They're doing their best to make sure that your kid gets a great education. In neighborhoods surrounding this state capital, one is constantly acquainted with the reality of homelessness. Encampments spring up, get cleared, spring up again. 
I walk and ride my bike past, you know, fellow Coloradans who it seems more than ever are sleeping in tents, carrying their worldly belongings with them. Governor, help us understand what goes through your mind when you see those same scenes. Talk, talk to me as, you know, governor, but also just Coloradan. Yeah, well, it's, it, uh, we're no stranger to that here at the state capitol. There have been encampments near the state capitol, uh, and we've had to work on, uh, with Denver has jurisdiction, not us, uh, had to work with Denver and cooperate with Denver on that. Homelessness is an issue, of course, that cities have to lead on solving, and people should understand that. The state, even in Denver, even when they're right near the capitol, we rely entirely on Denver. That doesn't mean the state should be doing nothing, and I'm proud to say we're doing a lot. What does it mean? We're stepping up and we're matching local investments in recovery and addiction treatment bets. One example is near Aurora. We identified a facility. We're partnering with Aurora to build upwards of 500 uh, residential treatment beds, you know, two months, three months, four months, to help get people off of drugs, to help give them support they need to get back to work. Uh, and have a housing plan after they get out. I think what most Colorados want to see is not on the street, but we want to make sure that there's a way to help and get better. And so the state is focused on making sure we have that ability through housing opportunities that can help get people clean and back into the mainstream. Why do you think the problem is as bad as it is now? So you've pointed to addiction. What else do you think is at play? So I'd say, you know, addiction is a big piece of it, but I would say mental health and behavioral health more broadly, right? Now, in in some cases, you would say it's an undiagnosed or untreated behavioral health issue that might lead to or facilitate addiction. In other cases, it might be a mental health issue independent of addiction. Uh, We want to make sure that we upgrade our behavioral health resources. So that's why what we focused on is centralizing our behavioral health response as a state. And this is one, again, we work through local partners, but we want to make sure that the state can meet the behavioral health needs of residents, ideally to prevent them from falling into homelessness, uh, but also to help those who are in homelessness be able to recover and get off the streets. The Supreme Court ruling on a gun law in New York has put a big question mark over other state and local gun laws. Do you think restrictions like the red flag law in Colorado, the magazine limit here, will stand potential court tests? So, you know, first of all, the red flag law, which is a way that, you know, a spouse or a parent of somebody who's having a behavioral health crisis can temporarily remove custody of their weapons, has actually been endorsed nationally by Democrats and Republicans in a bipartisan gun safety package that passed the United States Senate, signed by President Biden. Colorado will be seeing uh, additional resources from that to do outreach around the red flag law, which can absolutely act to prevent suicides as well as potentially other violent acts. Do you think that's in jeopardy now? The case in New York, uh, I've been, you know, and I've been advised by our legal counsel, is a very different area of law. So uh, in no area has a, a red flag law been struck down. And quite to the contrary, uh, bipartisan majority, Republicans and Democrats came together to support this concept federally. So I'm not aware of any legal jeopardy that it's in. Colorado Matters heads to the Western Slope next month. We'll broadcast from Grand Junction. And, you know, wolf reintroduction is a big story there. There was a narrowly successful ballot measure to force the state to reintroduce wolves. Now, environmentalists say that plan has been hijacked by ranching and hunting interests. Do you think the plan that's emerging 
follows the will of the voters. I think the real reason you're going to Grand Junction in August is for the peaches, right, Ryan? I mean, you can admit that. <laughs> oh, the peaches. And you know, there's a lavender wine in Palisade that I might uh, imbibe. We have some wonderful vineyards in the Grand Valley. Uh, you know, so the voters statewide voted on wolf reintroduction. Um, this is different. And there is a lot of confusion about this. This is different from the fact that a few wolves have any, naturally come over from Wyoming. So there are a few wolves here maybe three, maybe five, you know, they're not always tracked all the time. Separately from that, the voters said, we are going to do a reintroduction of wolves. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is working on a plan to do that. And of course, part of that is incorporating the concerns, legitimate concerns of ranchers and people that live in areas directly impacted by wolves in that process of successful reintroduction. Do you think that their voice is being heard amply, being heard too much? Swaying the well, process I, I, because you know, well, environmentalists. Since, since, since we run the process, I'm partial to saying it's the right amount. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we absolutely listen to everybody, right? And so do ranchers have legitimate concerns? Of course. And we want to make sure that wolves are reintroduced to Colorado consistent with the will of the voters and the way that addresses many of the concerns that ranchers have from predation. In fact, the initiative took that into account. It specified that ranchers would be compensated for predation. So states that already have wolves, like we mentioned Wyoming, have a wolf uh, predation compensation fund. Colorado also has that designated, and we're still in the process of implementing that because what happened here is the wolves got ahead of the reintroduction. So the wolves came before we set up the system that the voters approved, that will be set up consistent with the reintroduction, which will be in sustainable numbers. Wolves are not in Colorado in a sustainable numbers. They will be pursuant to the law of Colorado and the will of the voters by December of 2023. Governor, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Always a pleasure. We speak regularly with Colorado's governor. Democrat Jared Polis is up for re-election this year. And come fall, we'll air election interviews with him and his opponents, Republican Heidi Ganahl. Until then, catch our in-depth interview with Ganahl from June at CPR.org. Hear her views on everything from state spending to abortion. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with an award-winning book set in a dystopian future. It might remind you of our somewhat dystopian present. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. This summer is on pace to be one of the 10 hottest in recorded history. Heat is the leading weather-related cause of death in the U.S., and in urban areas, those temperatures are even higher. As CPR's Miguel Otarola reports, Boulder is trying to figure out which neighborhoods feel it worst. It's a little after 2.30 in the afternoon, and my weather app says it is 94 degrees here in Boulder. We had to choose a day and just hope it was going to be one of the hottest, and I think we were pretty successful. That's Brett Kincaren, the city's senior policy advisor on climate. He's sending volunteers out across the city today to collect heat and humidity readings as part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's annual mapping of urban heat islands. Urban areas can be several degrees hotter than their surroundings, 
because building materials like concrete and asphalt absorb and radiate more heat. The data will help guide local governments to make planning choices that protect more residents from extreme heat. Concaren says it could help Boulder decide where to plant trees to increase shade. Up to this point, it's been really hard to know, for example, if I plant trees, how much can I reduce temperature? Well, we'll know that after all the heat data that we're gathering. Some neighborhoods feel the heat more than others, says Adam Hall, a graduate student with CU Boulder's environmental program. You know, Boulder doesn't always have the reputation of being a diverse city, um, but those communities do exist here, um, and we want to make sure that they're not left out of the story. Hall worked with NOAA to design routes that took the volunteers through overlooked areas of the city, like mobile home parks and industrial zones. Volunteers were given sensors that record temperature and humidity every second. Other CU Boulder students were involved as part of their environmental studies. I tagged along with Ariana Borello, a recent graduate and project consultant. All right, officially on our route. Yeah. The route took us down busy streets and past some fancy houses. It also sent us by a closed power plant, a recycling facility, and even through a COVID testing lane. We're doing data gathering for air temperature. We're not doing COVID stuff. Oh, okay. Thanks, sorry. <laughs> The temperature would climb to 97 degrees that afternoon. Hall and the other team members still had another round of data gathering later in the evening. Honestly, I wouldn't mind if it cooled off a little bit for this evening. <laughs> the data collected during our drive will go to NOAA, which will then send it back to the city sometime in the fall. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. When she started writing Rise of the Red Hand, Olivia Chada imagined a future version of ourselves. But her dystopian story of tomorrow began to have, well, uncanny parallels to today. Chada won this year's Colorado Book Award for Young Adult Literature. CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane asked her to describe the plot. Rise of the Red Hand is set in a near-future South Asian setting where the world has kind of suffered from climate catastrophe and wealthy people are living in dumb cities. And the class system is really divided. And the main character, Ashiva, is a cyborg smuggler. And she's actually smuggling children that are being discarded from the uplanders to build an army of revolutionaries to kind of survive, but also maybe overthrow the government to give everyone an equal chance. And Rise of the Red Hand is definitely an adventure. But there's, you know, sort of commentary, I guess I could say, on colonialism and climate change and class distinction and that sort of thing. That's a lot to pack into a story like this. Tell me about yeah. your approach. I think in everything that I've written, if I have a chance to have a microphone, I'm going to put as much as I can <laughs> into the thing, you know, and um, I feel like I've done a lot of research on climate change. I think a lot of people have. And for this book specifically, my PhD was in literature and creative writing, but I did a lot of research on South Asian history, the partition of India, and just the movement of borders and boundaries and how this impacts people. And then I started looking into the environmental impacts of war, which is something that a lot of times we don't think about. But there is really interesting research on the environment and war and how the land actually changes from war and from the movement of bodies and people. And so I think the first idea I had for this story was just two characters who are so different and 
by learning who each other was on the opposite side of the tracks, they kind of created this empathetic bond that allowed them to understand the world better. That was it. That's I had like this tiny little idea that I need to talk about empathy. How do we show people um, experiencing it and learning and understanding it? And I thought about that. And then I kind of went into just the things that are most familiar. I think that saying like, write what you know, is really just an easy way to get into something. I know about those types of things. And I'm really fascinated with the future and also how accessible solutions are. And it's a lot of them get tied up in politics and unfortunately to our detriment, basically. So I started looking into India as a place where I could set this in the future because it's so complicated and the caste system is so complicated and the class system is so complicated. So I had the characters and I had the place and then I wanted to think about all the climate change problems that were happening in India now, which are, we see them in the news every day, but they are really quite tremendous. And because they feel far away, a lot of times we don't think about them as so critical to our existence right now in Colorado, in the US or wherever we are. Yeah. We're still comfortable here. Yeah. And it's easy to say, well, I can go inside my air conditioned house and not deal with the hundred degree weather or the ozone layers that are causing our our, um, air to feel toxic on the front range, which is a really big problem that we're experiencing. A lot of ozone, a lot of people are going to get new asthma problems. So I just kind of set it there. And I wanted to just shine a little bit of light on how problems all over the world actually impact other parts of the world right now and very, very much so, you know. A view of that mindset of people in the U.S. is sort of um, skewered a little bit, if I could say, in your story. (laughs) Yes, it was just, you know, I think in leadership on the largest scale, you know, and just how people feel that other people's problems aren't theirs. And who gets to choose what your problem is as a nation and how, you know, everyone breathes actually the same air and our water is all the same and how we are all connected. So it goes back into that empathy kind of discourse that I was trying to poke at is showing how it's weird and ironic when certain groups of people are like, that's not my problem, but we are all on the same planet. And that's not like a cheesy t-shirt. That's like a literal physical thing. (laughs) And our our air is really the same air. And we really have to talk about how we treat everybody and all the planet the same. Otherwise, we're going to end up, you know, it's kind of like a cautionary tale in certain ways, I guess. I think I was kind of alluding also to a moment where a Shiva meets representatives from an American province. I think I was trying to just reflect on, you know, here she is basically fighting in a war just to survive every day. You know, the food that she eats, she's saving lives, (laughs) smuggling children that aren't wanted from the wealthiest people. And, you know, just the high contrast between that. I wrote this first draft, I think, in 2018. So I was still, you know, kind of approaching the same issues that have unfolded since then, I guess, but they have just been heightened. I think our also our context has changed historically over the past three, four years, you know? And so now when we read something, we're like, oh, that's interesting because now our world is like that in some kind of way. <laughs> and the world building in your story is is handled with skill and it's vibrant, right? So huh. we're able to access it pretty easily. I think 
what we've already been able to touch on demonstrates that this isn't only for young adults or teens, that a variety of readers can have fun digging into this story and grappling with some of your questions. Tell me about your life as a writer here in Colorado. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, I came here for my master's when I was 25, and um, I just fell in love with the place. There's just a different feeling. I feel at home here. I've lived here longer than any other place that I've lived. And I've lived a lot of places, but this is this is definitely home. And I feel that what's so interesting about Colorado, well, there's three things. I think the community of writers and booksellers and people interested in the arts, it's just so vibrant here, you know, and I feel so lucky to be here because it is a nice, kind community and people are really welcoming in that sense. So there's the community of writers, you know, the the community of booksellers are amazing. <laughs> and this the people who talk about it's such a it feels smaller here, even though Colorado is quite a large state. I think that everybody knows each other in some kind of interesting way. But also the natural aspect of living here, I mean you you live outside. Doesn't matter what part of Colorado you live in, you know, you're always outside and exploring and you have these moments where you can actually think to yourself. I think um a lot of my writing takes place while I'm walking and hiking. In my mind, I just write in my head and I have a little notebook and I hike. I'll go on a trail and hike, watch butterflies and just kind of quiets my and anxious brain so that I can access these other places so easily. And I feel like here you can get um, space in your mind to be able to create. Whereas other places I've lived, it doesn't feel that way. I feel like there's so many other social pressures and so many other people around, but there's a beautiful space here that allows you to do that, you know, very easily. So I usually write outside. I write while I'm hiking. I, you know, um, and my next projects are set in Colorado, which is really fun. And I'm really excited to do that. I think I had to live here for at least 15 years to feel comfortable to set something here. Not that I've lived in a future India, (laughs) 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 but I felt, felt like I, I felt comfortable enough. Like I can try to do this. Let's see if I can do this. Um, but I felt like I have so much respect for the place that I really wanted to feel like at home here. It took me a little while and I, I feel good to do that. And so my next two projects are actually set here and I'm really excited about them. That sounds exciting to me too. Tell me about that evening when I met you. You won the Colorado Book Award. And the Colorado Book Award in Young Adult Literature goes to Rise of the Red Hand by Olivia Child. Your reaction was amazing. (laughs) And so was your speech. So tell me about that moment. Take me back to that moment from your point of view. Oh, my goodness. I was just so shocked and honored that the book was even read by people and chosen to be a finalist. And so I just, I didn't have anything prepared because I was, I felt so lucky to be in that room with all those talented people. And yeah, I was, I was just there to have a good time and enjoy. And and so when they called the book's title and my name, I, I didn't believe it. (laughs) And I even, we were sitting at the table all the way in the back because I didn't think that I'd have to walk up to the front. Um, I was convinced that it wouldn't happen. And I think it's funny because I think a lot of people felt that way about their books. I think that's a really sweet and earnest feeling is that 
you're just so shocked and surprised and thankful to be there that uh, if you win, that's just unbelievable. So yeah, after I, I cursed a little bit as I was walking up, like what the heck is happening? Um, I, I really had to think about what am I doing there? And I think that I started thinking about the current politics that were surrounding that date because it was a day after Roe was overturned and we were really in this wild moment. And then we were celebrating that night. And it seems like we keep having to apologize for celebrating during the last four years for anything because every day there is something bad that is taking something else important away. Some freedom is being taken away from some group. And I really wanted to say that it feels like an honor to write for people who want to still maybe stay in the fight. I think that the idea that we can't give up or feel overwhelmed by every day, the next thing, the next thing that keeps kind of wearing us away. I think we have to dig deep into our our soul to kind of garner the ability to stay focused on the fight. Like for every social aspect that we have, every problem and every problem is connected. So until everybody is equal, we can't stop fighting, but not to get overwhelmed. I think that's also the trick. I think in some kind of way, that sensation of feeling overwhelmed is is what we need to overcome. And just do what you can in your small community, in your life to um, impact change and also make yourself feel okay, that it's okay to stop reading the headlines some days. It's okay to just mourn some losses and it's okay to, you know, cry a little, but it's also really important to just get back out and make the stuff that you make so that you could try to influence better decision-making and vote properly, you know? You also challenged people to do some push-ups. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I just feel I just feel like, you know, it's sometimes like we get so in our minds that, you know, things are things are so hard. If we get overwhelmed and anxious, then, you know, just do something physical that makes you feel like getting back in the game. Just brush it off and keep going, you know. Was there something you were hoping you'd get to say that I didn't talk about for Rise of the Red Hand? Um, I think that I know that the world is on fire, or it feels like it is on fire, but after all of this, it's really important to try to feel optimistic about the future. And just being here is like a, a mode of optimism, writing, producing, doing whatever your work is, is a expression of optimism. And I feel that there will never be one single solution to all of our problems um, but the most important thing is to, that we are learning how to connect with each other again. And I believe in the human spirit to overcome a lot of these problems. So I, I just feel like though we write dystopias that though we write about things that are dark and sometimes hurt, and though the world sometimes feel like it's failing us, um, people are good, you know, and we all want the world to be better. And I think if we can just look at that a little closer and, and know that that's something that's happening and we can just try, just try a little harder. That it's was hard. lovely, Olivia. It's, <laughs> it's hard to find that hope, but I really feel like we, we need it, you know? I do. Eden Lane chatting with Boulder author Olivia Chada, who has written Rise of the Red Hand. 
It won this year's Colorado Book Award for Young Adult Literature. And we have our next pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's the latest from nature and adventure writer Craig Childs. He contemplates the beauty and meaning of rock art in his new book. Tracing Time celebrates the ancient communication on the caves, canyons, and cliffs of the Colorado Plateau. Child weaves in his conversations with elders, scholars, and friends. Pick up a copy of Tracing Time and join us September 6th in Grand Junction. Will be on the campus of Colorado Mesa University. Details at cpr.org slash turn the page. Again, the book is Tracing Time by nature and adventure author Craig Childs. More information at cpr.org slash turn the page. We'll be right back. A Palisade peach, unforgettably sweet and juicy, packs a lot of Colorado inside its fuzzy skin. In the late 19th century, farmers started developing land in the shade of the cliffs at the eastern end of Grand Valley on the western slope. The soil was rich with minerals for vegetables and grains, but too dry for fruit trees. Then came John Harlow, who planted peach trees in 1882 with water diverted from the Colorado River. The town of Palisade grew too, and just a few decades later it was shipping more than 25,000 pounds of peaches across the region every day. The winter of 1962 killed most of the existing fruit trees, but growers have persevered, and today Colorado is one of the country's top peach producers, celebrated for more than 100 years with what's now known as the Palisade Peach Festival, where you can take in a parade, present yourself to the peach queen and her court, and of course, eat a peach. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. At a busy intersection in Pueblo, there's a monument topped by a bronze bust of Christopher Columbus, a figure whose legacy is controversial. Two years ago, a group of Pueblo residents embarked on an effort to decide the statue's future. KRCC's Shauna Lewis reports that despite hope for a compromise, a solution is still not at hand. Pueblo is known for its ethnic diversity, including many descendants of immigrants who came to work at the steel mill. Some are part of a large Italian community who gifted the Columbus Monument to the city in 1905. Since then, they've come together there annually to celebrate their history, says Pueblo and Jerry Carlillo. It was a a recognition of thankfulness, of being able to come to America to live, grow, and allow the family to be safe. Indigenous, Hispanic, and people of other backgrounds have also gathered by the monument for decades to protest. For them, Columbus symbolizes colonialism, exploitation, and racism. The protests, like this one earlier this year, often include songs, dancing, and drumming. want the monument taken down or moved elsewhere. A driver honks and holds his fist up in solidarity. The Italian community wants the monument to remain where it is. In 2020, as unrest erupted around the nation, tensions over the Columbus bust escalated. So the city brought in a professional mediator, lawyer Fred Galvis, who grew up in the area and now handles community engagement at CSU Pueblo. He says both groups were entrenched in their positions yet still sent a handful of representatives to the mediation. There's all this history, all this mistrust, but they still wanted to talk 
They still wanted to see if it would be worthwhile to try to find some kind of solution. They didn't know what it would be or even if it were possible, but I did think that there was open-mindedness on both sides. So they worked through the process. It took several weeks, but they came up with a compromise. Pueblo City Council member Dennis Flores says everyone involved in the process agreed to turn the area around the monument into an outdoor museum. He says, along with the Columbus statue, there would be new monuments honoring indigenous and black people. Those installations would be on property owned by the library district across the street. It would be beautiful. And it was their idea, putting Columbus in a museum setting, along with a description of the truth and what had happened 500 years ago. It seemed like it would work, Galvis says. This would be a way of compromising in a respectful way that's moving forward. And we were also thought that there would be some great Pueblo pride there to say, hey, look at all the other places in the country trying to solve a problem. And we're doing it in a very unique, understanding way. But there were stumbling blocks. Those involved in the mediation thought the library could manage the site. But ultimately, its board didn't want to take it on. And there wasn't an agreement about what would happen to the Columbus bust while the new plaza was being built. Those pushing for change wanted it covered or moved. And the Italian representatives wanted it to remain as it was. Nonetheless, Galvis says, the mediation participants kept trying. I was leaving saying, okay, turn off the lights, guys. And they're still talking, trying to work it out and respecting one another. In the end, they couldn't find common ground. Carlio says he didn't have expectations for the mediation, but believed that because they all agreed to be at the table, it was worth the effort. I was disappointed that we did not get to the, the last set of objectives that both sides agreed to, a list of activities that we would do jointly to add value for the community. Puebloan Siavi Stevens was among the indigenous participants during the negotiation. She says she wants the situation to remain peaceful. But when asked if more mediation would work, she says, No, but I do feel like we got somewhere because we know where everybody stands and nobody is willing to move right now. (laughs) But at least we know each other's stands. But logically, we're right back to square one. That's Galvis, the mediator. He says part of the challenge is that each person brought their own personal point of view to the talks, a sentiment shared by the mayor, who was also involved in the process. Shortly after the meetings ended, the city council unanimously voted against putting the issue on a citywide ballot. The mayor and Flores say, at this point, it's status quo for the Columbus Monument in Pueblo. In Pueblo, I'm Shauna Lewis, KRCC News. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.